Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 57, The Betty Boo Freud Show. Ho, 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 listeners. I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons of modern history together at last. At Christmas. Yay. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Hail to the bus driver when we hail to the bus driver. Tell your fans to slag off when we tell our fans to slag off. And today I'll be talking about Season 3, Episode 22, The Otto Show, which aired on April the 23rd, 1992, after another two-week gap. And I'm going to be talking about Betty Boofroyd. On April the 27th, 1992, four days after the Otto show first aired, she was elected to be the first female speaker of the House of Commons. I'll be taking the opportunity to look at the inner workings of the House of Commons and its weird Dickensian ways. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore Retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. Tom, quick question. Has anyone got in touch to confirm if Steve Lamack has Peruvian roots? <laughs> I'm afraid not, no. That is probably going to be a mystery for the ages. Oh, well, that's a shame. We have had some feedback on a previous episode this week, though. Um, it was from a workmate of mine, delivered just this morning over Microsoft Teams. Now, uh, I don't want to name and shame him, because obviously we should have been working at the time. So, one, S. Rigby. No, no, that's too obvious. Let's call him Stephen R. Uh, got in touch about episode 46. Bellevasia Accords Verkaufen de Kraftwerk. <laughs> he says, you rightly mentioned about Smithers getting stung by bees and it having no effect on him, despite his deadly allergy to them in 22 short stories about Springfield. However, it could be that all these stings are what trigger his allergy. I suddenly became allergic to kiwi fruit in my 20s and had eaten loads of it prior to that. I loved the stuff. He adds, boy, I hope someone got fired for that. Boy, I hope someone got fired for that blunder. Blunder. <laughs> well, we're still here. Uh, I, I can assure you I've launched uh, disciplinary proceedings against myself. But uh, <laughs> um, thanks for listening, Steve. Um, and I'll, I'll speak to you at work next year. The air date for this episode was April the 23rd, 1992. And I can already hear you crying. Gareth, what was the UK number one? Well, it was right said, don't wear a mask. Woo. So to celebrate, I'm going down to number eight to stop him with an early 90s indie act we would otherwise miss. It's Carter the Unstoppable Sex Machine with The Only Living Boy in New Cross. Formed in 1987 by singer Jim Morrison, not that one, and generally known as Jim Bob as a result, and guitarist Fruit Bat, they found a niche in UK indie music where their stark two-piece performances with backing tapes of sequence drums and bass and their scathing, intelligent and permanently standoffish lyrics and vocal performances. They didn't shy away from the big issues either. Jim Bob is quoted as saying that this song is about watching all your friends die from what Prince called a big disease with a little name. We are lucky enough, you and I, Tom, to have seen medical science massively reduce the threat of HIV and AIDS in our lifetime. And it is sobering to remember how much of an issue it was and how many communities it has ravaged worldwide. The titular only living boy in New Cross is just that, the last survivor of a group of friends wiped out by AIDS. Thanks to Ben Baker for bringing that to my attention. 
Oh, and the name, of course, is heavily inspired by The Only Living Boy in New York, which is a song by Simon and Garfunkel. The single will peak at number seven and is their biggest hit single. The first to be taken from their number one album, 1992, The Love Album, which was released at the start of the following month. This was a massive happening. We, we touched on it a bit last time with Blur, but this level of success was a very rare thing for a UK indie band at the time, and yet would become commonplace a couple of years down the line. The fickle finger of fashion pointed swiftly away from Carter USM, and by the time I started paying attention to the music press in 1994, they were largely written off as a joke, as the press always did to bands who had the temerity to not go quietly into the good night when their gatekeeper-mandated 15 minutes was up. They continued releasing albums up to 1998, including their excellent singles collection Straw Donkey, and are very fondly remembered as genuine outsiders who made out well in an industry of generic copyists. Even if they did have the very silly name. They did. The US viewership for this episode was a Nielsen of 11.5, which is about 10.6 million homes. A relatively lowly 41st for the week. And only the fourth highest rated show on Fox. Now, I don't think there's any prizes for guessing all three of the shows that beat it. But Tom, can you do that anyway? Well, Married with Children is one of them. Absolutely. Is Dinosaurs still a thing? No, that wasn't on the same network. Oh, okay. A football match? No, no. So um, there's also In Living Colour, which has uh, pipped to the post a few times, uh, and Beverly Hills 90210. Oh, yes, of course. The production number for the episode was 8F21, and the credited writer was Jeff Martin, as we discussed in episode 19, Dead Webpage Society. The chalkboard gag is I Will Not Spin the Turtle, and the couch gag is Santa's Little Helper Growling. But what happens in the episode? Well, the Simpsons are going to a Spinal Tap concert. Springfield is one of four places mentioned on Bart's tour t-shirt. And yes, Tom, we're straight into it. What are the other three? Oh, no. I forgot to actually, I forgot to pay attention to that. It's probably something in London, Paris, New York, but I don't know. You're very, very close. It's London, Paris, Munich, Springfield. That's that's Ah, the tour uh, that is the tour agenda. So Barb wants to get there early to whip eggs at the support, but Homer's just glad his concert-going jacket still fits, even if his hearing has been ruined by said pastime. They pick up Millhouse and head to the arena, where Homer stays in the car while Bart and Millhouse go in past the Hawkers. We're treated to a Bill and Marty interview with the Tap, where they reflect on their newfound success on the dismal side of the Iron Curtain after the fall of the Berlin Wall, helping them nestle amongst the top 105 concert acts on Earth and each to buy their own soccer team. Yes, nobody has benefited more from the fall of the Berlin Wall than the band, except perhaps the Hungarios. (laughs) And then we're off to the bleeding splish splash show. Things immediately go south with spotlights, pyrotechnic and fan speed issues, followed by a half-inflated Dark Lord. And when they're subjected to unexpected laser eye surgery, it's goodnight Springton. There will be no encores. The very reasonable citizens of Springfield go nuts and trash the place, led by Otto and Snake. Homer, despite being in the car park, is largely unaware of this as he's rocking out to Spanish flea with a big bag of pork rinds light, even missing the arrival of the police as, for the first time ever, a hockey arena becomes the scene of violence, leading Kemp Brockman to call for a ban on all music. Bart is fine, though, and has decided he wants to become a rock star. Millhouse, on the other hand, is left forgotten under a pile of folding chairs, setting the scene for his ongoing role in the show. 
worth just pausing to note that that's the first nine minutes of the Shogun and we haven't had any plot yet. All of this just exists to get a guitar into Bart's hands so that Otto can shred for so long the next day. He's late getting the kids to school and he totals the bus in his haste. Although during this sequence, we do get Bart's fantastic dream in which he is a rock star performing his hit, Me Fans Are Stupid Pigs, and telling his manager to slag off before throwing a Jack Daniels bottle at Millhouse. Anyway, Otto gets suspended after 15 crashes and the revelation that he has neither a license nor his own underwear, with Skinner volunteering to drive the bus, which works out very poorly. Meanwhile, after Otto fails to get his license from Patty at the DMV, having misspelled bus on his application, Bart finds him sleeping in a trash co waste disposal unit when he throws Arpu's experimental chutney squishy into said. And in the first instance of what will become a regular occurrence, the subject of the episode moves into the Simpson house temporarily. He can't stay with his parents, as his father, referred to here as the Admiral, and, and actually later revealed to actually be one in a later episode, doesn't like him. But nor does Homer, who quotes that most well-known Bible passage, Thou shalt not take moochers into thy hut. <laughs> He allows Otto to stay on the condition that Homer gets to treat him like garbage. And he does. But it's not like Otto is a great house guest, generally sitting around shirtless, playing loud guitar and occasionally scaring the kids. Bart, meanwhile, gives up the guitar. Homer isn't mad. He's proud that Bart has learned if something's too difficult and you're not great at it right away, it's not worth doing. He tells Bart to put it into the closet with his other discarded hobby items. Tom, double quiz time. What are those items? Karate outfit. Yes. Unicycle. Yes. No, I can't remember. It is a shortwave radio. Oh, yes, cool. Homer eventually kicks Otto out. Otto uses his rage at Homer to motivate himself to resit the driver's ed exam and get his license. Luckily, he mentions his hatred of Homer to Patty, and they bond over their mutual dislike of the Simpson patriarch. Despite still being a useless driver, he obtains his probationary license. And once again, the kids of Springfield Elementary hail to the bus driver. Bus driver man. So this is the episode that kind of establishes a trick that the show will go back to a fair few times. Spending a a whole episode with an ancillary character and fleshing them out a bit, usually by moving them into the Simpson home. You could say Bart the Lover was the first of those as well, but that one I think was a bit more effective because Edna, as a character, has got a lot more going on than Otto. I don't think we needed to know any more about him. He's he's a one-note joke and he he works fine like that. And This this episode does nothing to change that. I I think these kind of episodes can work. Uh, Troy McClure's one springs to mind, for instance. Where it's a character like Otto or Gil, you, you just can't make the same magic. And I also think the pacing of the episode is a bit suspect. They, they spend so much time at the concert early on that there's not much time for anything else. But having said that, the concert's the best bit. So if, mm. if I had to make the episode, I wouldn't lose that. So I actually, this is how I spend my free time. I actually sat down and thought, how could I make this episode a bit snappier? And I came to the conclusion that Otto should have been sacked for starting the riot at the concert because then you get mm-hmm. to the plot a couple of minutes earlier. But there we go. Anyway, what did you think of it? I think it's a very good episode, but mostly for the Spinal Tap stuff. It isn't nearly as good after 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 them presumably killed in a horrible bus crash. But there's one thing I noticed about it, which 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 really really bugs me. But did you notice what happens to the guitar in the middle of a scene? 
No, no, I didn't. I didn't notice that. There's this continuity error, which really bugs me. And it shouldn't, because at the start, there's a lot of attention to detail. So they obviously established quite early on that Bart Simpson is left-handed. So Homer and Marge buy him a left-handed guitar. However, Otto is right-handed. And you can play a left-handed guitar if you're right-handed, but you have to play it upside down. If you ever watch the bass player from the band Doves play bass, he plays it upside down so that the deeper string is at the bottom of the guitar rather than at the top. In the scene where Otto and Bart are rocking out, you can see that the head of the guitar is correctly upside down, but the body of the guitar isn't because the speaker's on the bottom. And then after the camera's changed perspectives a bit, it goes back to Otto and he's holding a plain old right-handed guitar. Boy, I hope someone got fired for that, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> uh, do you know what? I, I hadn't spotted that. I, I was too busy trying to work out ways to cut fat from the script. Um, <laughs> but I shall certainly take a look next time. And now it's time for the character debut section. As we've continued through our look at The Simpsons, we've hit a bit of a wall with the character debut section, as less characters have, well, debuted in the episodes that we've discussed recently. But this time round, we get a debut so almighty in its scope that we've called in a ringer to do it justice. Ladies and gentlemen, introducing friend of the podcast, broadcaster, journalist, and TV's claggers expert, Tim Worthington. Hi, Tim. Hello, that is me. Yes, I can confirm I am TV's Clangers expert. Excellent. So I, I guess my first question for you is, who are Spinal Tap? Spinal Tap are a veteran British rock band whose career goes right back to the start of the 60s. They first became big as part of the British invasion, went psychedelic in the late 60s, then kind of one of the pioneers of heavy metal. The problem was they sort of got left behind by taste and fashion with the unfortunate result that they are a very good band. They're successful around the world. It's just they happen to be complete idiots. It it should be mentioned, uh, just in case anybody hasn't, hasn't cottoned on to this, that Spinal Tap are, shock horror, not a real band. Uh, well, in the traditional sense, anyway, as they're played by actors, uh, including Harry Shearer, who was already embedded as a Simpsons cast member. Who else are we hearing here? We're hearing Michael McKean as David St. Hubbins and Christopher Guest as Nigel Tufnell, the guitarists and lead vocalists of the band, respectively. Obviously, Harry Shearer is Derek Smalls, who plays bass. There's a procession of drummers, which we'll come back to in a minute. But basically, the whole thing started with there was a 1979 pilot that never went to a series called The TV Show, which is kind of intended as a rival, I think, to Saturday Night Live, where they parodied TV. And they had an idea for doing, you know, one of the, because there were all these. British rock bands that were still around from the, the late prog, early metal era, like Uriah Heat, Black Sabbath, and so on. And they just found something comic in the way these bands conducted themselves in the changing world and tried to adapt to, you know, changing fashion, changing musical tastes, and never really could. And it was basically from that one sketch, because Rob Reiner, who directed This Is Spinal Tap, the kind of debut feature film that launched them, was a cast member on that show. Basically, it all just came together from that. They improvised, more or less, this film about the band on a disastrous tour of America. And it basically it wasn't as big a hit at the time as it later became, which, again, we'll come back to. But when they made this cameo on The Simpsons, it wasn't really like a big celebrity cameo. 
there was still an underground thing to the extent that I think probably some people watching The Simpsons thought they were real. I would imagine so. Um, and as it turns out, Spinal Tap songs uh, cost just as much as anyone else's to license, uh, which Fox are apparently quite upset about, thinking they could have got a quote-unquote real band instead. Um, but of course, using this one sets up the kind of onstage shenanigans you only get with the tap. Exactly. I mean, I rewatched the Spinal Tap appearance in the Otto show just before doing this. I was amazed at how much they pack into what is essentially little more than two minutes. I mean, you've got all kinds of jokes like they start doing Break Like the Wind from their second album, the kind of haunting, ominous title track. And there's a joke right at the beginning where they're all lit in spotlight one by one, apart from Derek, who's only half in the spotlight, which references a joke from the film where they all come out of pods to sing rock and roll creation and his doesn't open until the end of the song. As a brilliant thing because they do the commentary, the film on the DVD in character, and they watch that in silence. And David remarks, it wasn't fair they picked that to show because most nights he gets most of the way out of the car. <laughs> and then there's an explosion that goes wrong. There's fans holding up an upside down sign. There's a huge inflatable devil that deflates. Looks like it's about to take out one of their drummers again. Um, and the spotlight goes wrong again. Nigel gets zapped in the eye by a laser and ends with them saying, as I frequently say on social media, good night, Springton. There will be no encore. <laughs> So this is not just part of Simpsons continuity. It's also part of Spinal Tap continuity. There's the um, the, the band, despite not existing, um, have an actual history. And the history actually went on between This Is Spinal Tap, which was the, the original uh, documentary, um, which ends with them being on the up and uh, with a lucrative Japanese tour, lifting them back up from rock bottom, or should I say big bottom, Um but I think less people are aware of what the band were up to at this particular stage of their careers. Could you talk us through that a little? Yes, because the interesting thing is that as far as I can tell, they seem to think Spinal Tap was done and dusted after the film. I mean, they did an album and a tour. And there was another single, Christmas with the Devil, which everyone forgets. But the film itself, it was a critical hit. It wasn't that big a commercial hit until it started turning up on TV and it came out on VHS, you know, rental in those days. I remember us renting it from the video shop when we weren't really supposed to, but we'd heard about this really funny film about this embarrassing rock band. And, you know, we, lo- we loved it as if it was a real band that we loved. And that was when they started thinking about doing a second album, which obviously became Break Like the Wind, I think, released early in 1992. And to go with that, they did the huge publicity blitz. They're on all kinds of things, like the they're on the Freddie Mercury tribute concert, which is a bit disrespectful really <laughs> but in a way that i love to run things like amnesty international was the big 3-0 where nigel had to appear by video link because Derek had accidentally blown up his house which is <laughs> as throwaway <laughs> jokes go that's brutal. but they did join the round of interviews i mean a lot of spinal tap is improvised around ideas they've had and they did fill in this amazing you have to go and hunt out all kinds of interviews and all kinds of things like you know press releases and so on to get the whole picture together but there is this really really detailed history what they what they were supposedly up to in the 80s when they pursued solo ventures and i've picked out some of the highlights from it here starting with david went into production and managing and he discovered the band called Lama, a glam metal band but they ran into problems because people kept missing off the accent <laughs> give you a second to work that out Nigel went to Switzerland to do an album working with traditional Swiss musicians on 
traditional Swiss rhythms, which was all set for release when, to quote him, Paul Simon came out with Graceland and that kind of spoiled it, really. (laughs) (laughs) Amongst other things. Derek joined a Christian rock band called Lamb's Blood, who broke up, not very Christian. (laughs) They also had problems, even though they weren't actively performing with drummers, because obviously Mick Shrimpton, who was the drummer for most of this Spinal Tap, explodes towards the end of it. And there were a few short-stay replacements. Viv Savage, the keyboard player, was not involved with the reunion. In reality, because David Caff was away making a film. But in Spinal Tap lore, he had accidentally done some drumming and was killed by a build-up of natural gas. <laughs> so they, they then, when they started rehearsing, tried using a drum machine, which exploded and wasn't replaceable by warranty. So instead, they got mixed twin brother, Rick Shrimpton, which I... One thing I loved about the interviews they did around this time was that interviewers would repeat the name back to them and say, you've heard of him, which is a a lovely touch. They got into legal trouble because they put out a statement saying the manager, Ian Faith, was dead. They had to retract it and put it back out saying he was biologically dead. But it turned out he he had actually formed the Managing Wilburys with a bunch of 60s rock managers who went around managing bands in an old time revival style. (laughs) And Spinal Tap also remastered their back catalogue, which drew up its own problems. I mean, amongst other things, they finally released the unreleased concept album, The Incredible Flight of Icarus P. Anybody, which is about a man who learned he could fly. He kept waking up to find people affixing seats to his back and charging money. (laughs) And also their legendary 1968 single, Rainy Day Sun, was on an obsolete tape format. So they had to mix it into stereo to mix it back into mono for the remaster. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which they seem particularly aggrieved about when they, whenever they mentioned that. Well, the best thing was they finally revealed that they thought Spinal was spelt S-P-Y-N-A-L. And so they thought they should misspell it like the Beatles with an I. So the name was spelt correctly by mistake. <laughs> and to quote Nigel, so that's what our career has been. One big mistake. The fans come to the concert. They look at the tickets. They look at us and they say, what a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and, and all these remasters and yet jazz odyssey still sits on the shelf it's a, it's a crime <laughs> i tell you so uh, uh just one last question for you um what is your favorite spinal tap song my favorite spinal tap song is actually from break like the wind and it's the majesty of rock which is the second single from it which they actually start doing in this just as the devil deflates the very strange thing about Spinal Tap is their songs are funny, but they are very plausible. You get things like, you know, Stonehenge is a very comical song, but you can imagine hippies, you know, leftover hippies thinking it was meaningful as they smoked a lot of weed in 1972. It really does sound authentic. And the lyrics are, you know, like in rock and roll creation, you've got, um, I look to the skies and the answer is clear. I look in the mirror and see what I fear. Which is funny, but also exactly like something one of those bands would have done. And this explores, as it says, the majesty of rock, which obviously has an existence independent of role, which is profiled separately in the song. <laughs> and it includes the proud declaration, the more it stays the same, the less it changes. Which is pretty much true of Spinal Tap themselves, really. Yes, and long may they stay the same. Uh <laughs> Tim, thank you very much for uh, for coming on. I'd, I'd, I'd just like to mention uh, 
coincidentally, as it were, uh, that Tom and I have both made appearances on Tim's podcast, Looks Unfamiliar, which deals with forgotten pop culture. And I'm also on a couple of episodes of It's Good Except It Sucks, Tim's item by item look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Is there anything else you'd like to bring our attention to? Yeah, I should just say that in one of your appearances on Looks Unfamiliar, which you always forget to mention, you talk about the mystery behind the Simpsons' Yellow album. Ah, of course, yes. Uh, the Simpsons' very own uh, musical enigma wrapped in a vest. Excellent, yes, so so seek that out. Um, Bart Odyssey, you could call it. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So, thank you very much, Tim. And in closing, we salute you, our half-inflated Dark Lord. Oi. 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 Oh, Tom, there you are. Sorry, you, you went quiet there for about 11 minutes. Very <laughs> uh, very strange, that. Um, but, but uh, you know, um, obviously we can't leave you out of this. Um, so do you, you have a, a favourite Spinal Tap song? I do. Uh, I absolutely love the Spinal Tap film. And I think my favourite song is the most ridiculous, the most chauvinistic one, which is Big Bottom. So it's obviously a parody of Fat Bottom Girls by Queen. Three of them are playing bass guitars for some reason, but it's just the lyrics just 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 blow my mind. My baby fits me like a flesh tuxedo. I like to sink her with my pink torpedo. It's hilarious and terrible at the same time. <laughs> I think that's one where uh, Derek Small plays a uh, a double headed bass as well, which is perhaps the most redundant guitar ever ever created um <laughs> and i say that as a bass player uh, <laughs> uh my my favorite spinal tap song for uh, uh purposes of completion is uh tonight i'm gonna rock it tonight which is the the first song that they play in this is spinal tap the reason it's my favorite is i was playing guitar hero 2 on the the playstation 2 and i had no uh, no clue that this was coming up at the end of like the first set of songs the game demanded that i play an encore and it was that song by spinal tap and uh, having done, done, I would say, reasonably well on it, I was treated to the sight of the drummer exploding. So uh, <laughs> they'd obviously done their homework on that one. That's brilliant. So did you know Billy Beer, not to be confused with Billy Beer, the former Sheffield United wing half of the same name, was released in 1977 by the Falls City Brewing Company and was promoted by history's greatest monster's brother, Billy Carter who apparently preferred Pabst anyway. It will appear again in The Simpsons in Season 9, Episode 8, Lisa the Skeptic. In the car outside the concert, Homer is listening to Spanish Flea, brought to prominence in 1965 with an instrumental version by Herb Alpert and his Tijuana Brass. Although there are lyrics, as sung by Homer in this episode, the song appears three more times in The Simpsons. In Season 7, Episode 12, Team Homer, it's used to soundtrack Lisa and Martin modelling the new school uniforms from Mr. Boy and Mr. Boy for Girls. In Season 9, Episode 25, Natural Born Kisses, it's heard on the car radio in an advert for divorce. And in Season 10, Episode 12, Sunday Cruddy Sunday, it plays as Homer fumes in the mechanic's waiting room after being tricked into an expensive procedure. And finally, Homer comments on Otto's status as unusual house guest, by noting that this is not Happy Days and he is not the Fonz. No, their equivalent will come later, when Roy moves in, in Season 8, Episode 14, The Itchy and Scratchy and Poochie Show. Tom, it's over to you for memeable moments. Okay, so there's quite a lot of memeable moments in this one, but I think I've been overly generous, so let's see what you think. So, number one, Billy Beer. I consider that a meme in itself. 
And then the rest of them are just quotes from Spinal Tap. So number two, this is a rock concert, not the Bleeding Splish Splash show. Then three, we've already done it. We salute you, our half-inflated Dark Lord. Hoi. 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 Number four, can we turn the house lights up, please? We're supposed to turn the house lights up so that they can, so that we can tell the audience we're the sixth member of the group. Uh, and then moving on from Spinal Tap, after Homer and Marge give Bart his guitar, you get number five. Homer saying, "Now, boy, we spent a lot of money, so you better get real good, real fast, or pow." Then you've got Bart's fantasy. I, I, I love, I love the way Bart fantasizes about him just completely destroying his own life. <laughs> it's not the first time he's done that. Number six is his song, "Me fans are stinking pigs," and I said, "Slag off." Number seven is Skinner opening the bus to Bart and Bart saying, where's Otto? And Skinner going, Otto, well, there's one palindrome you won't be hearing for a while. Nice to see the word palindrome in there. Number eight is everyone singing Hail to the Bus Driver Man, which, of course, later sees Skinner breaking down when Ralph starts singing it on his own. And we get a fairly good Nyarg, bro. Not as good as one from Kelsey Grammer, but uh, it's, uh, it's all right. It's up there. Then you got number nine, which is when Otto's being evicted and he is impressed by the fact that he had mustard. <laughs> Do you know what, though? The other day, I genuinely did find mustard in my fridge that I didn't know I had. And I it was a it was a similar scene. Yeah. Wow. I had mustard. <laughs> then number 10 is a fantastic piece of Homer Simpson wisdom. Son, if something's hard to do, then it's not worth doing. Which is great. Uh, number 11, Otto saying, oh, I've never been called an adult before. I've been tried as one. And then finally, number 12, he didn't call you a bum. He called you a sponge. <laughs> so there we are. That's memeable moments. Fantastic. And from memeable moments, we go um, go to Betty Boothroyd, which is the, the natural progression of things. <laughs> yeah, that's how this show works. We need to put something in the middle, like a song or something. You know, we, we, we've done the Simpsons bit. Now we're doing the history bit. But at the moment, we're just doing it, which is fine. So uh, Betty Boothroyd, the former Speaker of the House of Commons, elected to the role on April 27th, 1992, four days after the Otto show first aired. Now, at this point in time for me, it feels like we've gone from history to nostalgia. So I was born in 1982 and Betty Boothroyd was a permanent fixture on the news with her cries of order also punctuating reports of whatever was going on at the time in Parliament. But before I get to that, and seeing as it's a Christmas show, nominally, I thought I'd take a look at some Dickensian eccentricity, that being the history and workings of the British Parliament. How does the British Parliament work? It's often called the mother of all parliaments, a quote linked to the British politician John Bright in a speech he gave in Birmingham in 1865. That's Birmingham, England, not Birmingham, Alabama. The idea there is that Parliament is a template for all parliaments around the world. However, I'd argue that in our current times, the template for lots of other countries' governments comes from the USA. I know I've gone over it before, but there are three branches of the American government, the executive, legislative and judicial. Put simply, the executive is headed by the president and they propose new laws. Then you have the legislative, which scrutinises the proposed laws. In the USA, that's Congress, both houses of it. Then you have the judicial, who interpret and apply the laws. In the US, that's the court system, with the highest court being the Supreme Court. In the UK, things are a bit different. We have two chambers of Parliament, the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Above that is the Queen, 
but it's now very much a ceremonial role, so the Queen approves everything put in front of her. If she didn't, there'd be a revolution, quite frankly. So let's go over the House of Commons. Currently, the UK is divided into 650 parliamentary constituencies, each one with an electoral roll of around 60,000. As it's based on population, the electoral map of the UK can look really weird, with constituencies in rural Scotland being huge and ones in central London being tiny. Each constituency elects one member of parliament, or MP, using the thoroughly antiquated first-past-the-post system. In it, exactly. So in it, there is one and only one round of voting. The candidate with the most amount of votes wins. This leads to situations where the winner of the seat receives less than 50% of the vote. For example, in the Peterborough by-election of June 2019, the Labour Party won with 30.9% of the vote, meaning that way over two-thirds of the electorate did not vote for the winner. Terrible voting systems aside, the way the House of Commons is supposed to work is as follows. Every four or five years or so, there is a general election and every seat in the country is up for grabs. Once the dust settles on the election, some basic arithmetic takes place. If one party has a majority, over 50% of the seats, then that party forms a government and the leader becomes the prime minister. However, if there is no majority, then you have what's called a hung parliament, and the largest party has first dibs on trying to form a coalition. Historically, that's pretty rare for the UK, but it famously happened after the 2010 election, which was 10 years ago, which is ridiculous. That election that took place on May the 6th saw the Conservatives, led by the Paul sign David Cameron, win 306 seats, 20 short of the majority. The Liberal Democrats, led by Nick Clegg, won 62. Meanwhile, Labour, led by the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, Gordon Brown, lost nearly 100 seats and ended up with 258. Now, at the time, a Labour-Lib Dem coalition seemed to make the most sense. Tony Blair had been in charge of Labour for over a decade, and he'd steered the party towards the centre. And the Lib Dems were centre-left. However, even if you combined the seats of Labour, the Lib Dems, and all the other minor parties, that wouldn't have been enough for a majority. So it came to pass that the Lib Dems got into bed with the Conservatives, going into a coalition with 363 seats combined. David Cameron became Prime Minister and Nick Clegg his deputy. In the long run, the coalition was a disaster for the Lib Dems and they still haven't recovered from it, with the amount of Lib Dems in Parliament now barely troubling double digits. Believe it or not, the Lib Dems actually got something out of the 2010 coalition, a referendum on using the alternative vote system for general elections. AV is no single transferable vote, but it's a step up from first past the post. The AV referendum was held on May the 5th, 2011, and AV was decisively rejected with 13 million votes against it and 6 million for it. I've said it before and I'll say it again, democracy simply doesn't work. <laughs> but the 2010 election was not the only one that resulted in a hung parliament. The election of February the 28th, 1974, held during dire economic times in the UK, before the EU single market and all that good stuff, resulted in Harold Wilson's Labour Party winning 301 seats and Ted Heath's Tories winning 297. So very close, but both major parties were far short of the 318 required for a majority. And that election really showed why first past the post is not fit for purpose. Labour got 11.6 million votes nationwide and the Tories got 11.8 million and they ended up with about 300 MPs each. The Liberals, led by Jeremy Thorpe, played by Hugh Grant in the BBC drama A Very English Scandal, got 6 million votes nationwide, more than half of what Labour and the Tories got. Did they get more than half their seats? 
Of course not. Remember, Labour got 301 seats and the Liberals got 14, which is absolutely shocking. After the February 1974 election, no coalitions emerged, so Labour led a minority government. Of course, that was never going to last, so another election occurred on the 10th of October 1974, just eight months after the last one. This time, Labour scraped a victory with 319 seats, just one more than what was needed for a majority. So anyway, once there is an election result, what happens then? Well, here in the UK, we don't make a distinction between the executive and the legislative. The government proposes legislation and it's debated in the same chamber. The second chamber of the British Parliament is the House of Lords, which is completely unelected. There are bishops, hereditary peers, although not so many these days, and life peers. Their job is to scrutinise legislation and send it back if it requires updating. However, because of the Parliament Acts of 1911 and 1949, the power of the Lords is rather curtailed. They can send a bill back to the Commons a maximum of six times before it has to be passed, and they can delay legislation for up to one year maximum. Once a bill has passed both the Commons and the Lords, it goes to the Queen for royal assent. Of course, these days the Queen doesn't sign things off herself. It's a formality that's done by someone representing her. Each parliamentary session starts with the state opening of Parliament, and that's a goldmine of weird Dickensian rituals. Black rod, anyone? Exactly. So first off, there is the ritual of the searching of the cellars. The yeomen of the guard, the Queen's official guard, go into the cellars of the Palace of Westminster looking for explosives, just in case a modern guy forks fancies another go. The yeomen are paid for their services with a small glass of port. I mean, just... I don't, I don't want to bang the drum too much, but 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 all of this is complete claptrap. Um, <laughs> oh, you, you'll get you'll get me onto tearing down the royal family if I if I go Ooh. any further. So I'm just I'm just going to leave it there, just just so you know, claptrap. Yeah, but the day has barely started yet, so that's the first thing that happens. <laughs> that's the first thing that happens at the state opening of, opening of Parliament. And, and I'm, all, you know, I'm already choking on my own rage. <laughs> right. So once the area is secure, the Lords gather in the House of Lords wearing their ceremonial robes, finest leather trimmed ermine with gold medallion accessories. The members of the House of Commons assemble in their chamber wearing ordinary day dress. The Speaker makes their way to the Commons, accompanied by a policeman who shouts, hats off, strangers getting everyone in the lobby to take their hats off in a mark of respect to the speaker. What are you doing wearing a hat indoors? I've no idea. And after that, you have my favourite thing, the delivery of the parliamentary hostage. So this is a tradition that goes back to Charles I, a king who would eventually be beheaded by execution. He had a distrust of Parliament and he requested that an MP be held hostage while he was visiting it. The MP is delivered to Buckingham Palace kept under guard and only released when the Queen gets back. The last MP to have this honour was the Tory Stuart Andrew, the MP for Pudsey in West Yorkshire. Then, before the Queen gets to Parliament, the Royal Regalia goes there before her. These include the Imperial State Crown, the Great Sword of State, and the excitingly named Cap of Maintenance, a crimson velvet cap lined with ermine. It kind of looks like a fancy elf hat, quite... uh, Quite appropriate for a Christmas show. I was going to say the cap of maintenance sounds like the, the worst Dungeons and Dragons artifact you could possibly get. <laughs> it does a bit, yeah. So, so uh, kings of England apparently wear a cap of maintenance before their coronation, but obviously that hasn't happened in nearly a hundred years. So, will it happen soon? Who knows? 
Once the royal regalia are safely displayed in the royal gallery and the MP successfully taken hostage, the Queen can arrive. When she gets to the Palace of Westminster, there's some flag action. The Union flag is taken down and replaced with the Queen's royal standard. The Queen then gets changed in the robing chamber, putting on her state robes and the imperial state crown. The robing chamber has a copy of Charles I's death warrant on the wall, just in case she gets any ideas. She then proceeds to the House of Lords, sits on the throne and declares, my lords, pray be seated. The next event is carried out by Black Rod. Now, Black Rod isn't a miscoloration of the character in season one of The Simpsons, but the Lady Usher of the Black Rod, someone whose job it is to control access to and maintain order in the House of Lords, a position that dates back to 1350. Their role is to summon the members of the House of Commons to the House of Lords to hear the Queen's speech. Black Rod goes to the Commons and immediately has the door slammed in their face. They then bang on the door three times with the rod before being let in. They then address the Speaker and the MPs are invited to the Lords. The ceremonial mace is then picked up by the Sergeant at Arms and the Speaker and Black Rod leads the MPs to the House of Lords. Tradition dictates that the Prime Minister and Leader of the Opposition leave first, followed by Cabinet and Shadow Cabinet members according to rank. Once everyone is in the Lords, the Queen's speech can begin. The speech is written by the Prime Minister, and in it, the Queen details what the government plans to do in the upcoming parliamentary session. The speech is written on vellum, which is another name for goat skin. It's presented to the Queen while she sits on the throne. There are some steps to get to the throne, and once the Lord Chancellor has presented the vellum, it's then customary to walk down those steps backwards so as to not turn their back to the Queen. As far as I know, no one has yet to fall down the stairs while walking backwards. But if they did, that would be a great metaphor for Brexit. OK, the speech is supposed to be neutral. The Queen keeps referring to my government and it isn't expected to be applauded or booed. Once it's all over, the Queen is the first to leave. The members of the House of Commons then return to their chamber. Both the Commons and the Lords then debate the speech and they record ceremonial bills thanking the Queen for it. Following the debate, MPs take a vote on the government's agenda and then they get on with the process of governing. But what about the regular day-to-day -day workings of government? A typical day will involve debates, questions and ministerial statements, but they always begin with something I find rather controversial. Prayers. So the Speaker's chaplain reads the prayers and while they're being read, the tradition is for MPs to turn around and face the wall. It's believed that this tradition, which started sometime in the 16th century, started because MPs used to wear swords and kneeling to prayer at a bench while wearing a sword would be rather tricky. Starting the day off with Christian prayers is controversial in my eyes for a couple of reasons. One, we're supposed to be a secular state. And two, if an MP gets in for prayers, they guarantee themselves a seat. Bizarrely enough, Parliament isn't quite big enough to accommodate all of the MPs. So turning up to prayers offers MPs an unfair advantage. Parliament cannot officially sit or make laws without one thing the ceremonial mace. It's about five foot long, golden, and sits at the end of the table of the house in front of the speaker. It's there to represent royal authority. The fact that business can't be done without the mace has been exploited several times throughout Parliament's history. In a debate on nationalising UK aerospace and shipbuilding in 1976, things got rather heated and the Labour members of Parliament started to sing the Red Flag, their traditional anthem. As a protest of the singing and the bill in general, Michael Heseltine, the man who would go on to be Deputy Prime Minister, picked up the mace and held it above his head before putting it back down. Which just sounds like a football match. 
because the red flag has been adopted as, as a football song. You know, my team Norwich sing the green flag. We'll keep the green flag flying high. All that. And then you got Michael Heseltine, possibly when he got the nickname Tarzan, grabbing the mace and holding it above his head, going, Whoa! <laughs> uh, I'd imagine this was before TV cameras were common in Parliament. I would have loved to have seen that. And also, during a debate on the poll tax in 1988, the Labour MP Ron Brown picked up the mace and threw it on the floor, damaging it. Brown was ordered to pay £1,500 towards the cost of its repair. In 2009, the future Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer, John MacDonald, removed the mace after being told that the government would approve a new runway at Heathrow Airport without a vote in Parliament. MacDonald was immediately suspended from Parliament for five days. More recently, Lloyd Russell Moyle took the mace in 2018 as a protest at Theresa May delaying the meaningful vote on her Brexit deal. And just this year, the Scottish nationalist Drew Henry took it during a debate on the UK Internal Market Bill. So we've seen how a parliamentary session starts and a little bit of the workings, but what about how it ends? Well, each parliamentary session is supposed to last for around a year. Once the government's programme has been worked through, the parliamentary session is ended by a process called prorogation. The idea is that the Prime Minister informs the Queen via the Privy Council that the current session of Parliament is at an end and a new one needs to start. The process takes around three weeks and during this time Parliament doesn't sit. In usual times, prorogation is a completely normal thing, so normal that it just isn't an event. However, prorogation has been used controversially throughout the years, notably by King Charles I in 1628 when he started his personal rule. Clement Attlee used prorogation in 1948 to get through his Acts of Lords reform. The 1911 Parliament Act allowed the Lords to block legislation for three parliamentary sessions. He used prorogation to make a session of Parliament last just five weeks, and it still counted, and his reform bill passed. But of course, the most famous example of improper prorogation happened all the way back in 2019. Remember those days? Back then, the UK was, and of course still is, mired in the Ali carbuncle that is Brexit, our exit from the European Union. On July 23rd, 2019, Boris Johnson became leader of the Conservative Party. His predecessor, Theresa May, had left him with the minority government, which was being propped up by the fanatical creationists of the Democratic Unionist Party. With the UK scheduled to leave the EU with or without a trade deal on October the 31st, the clock was ticking. Tory MPs opposed to no deal, led by Oliver Letwin, made an emergency motion to delay Brexit. The bill passed and Johnson had no working majority just a day after becoming prime minister, as the 21 Tory rebels were suspended from the party. Johnson went ahead with the prorogation, announcing it on August 28th, and the session of Parliament sat until 2am on the night of September the 10th, when Blackrod arrived to start the prorogation ceremony. The Speaker, John Burko, called the prorogation an act of executive fiat. After the prorogation was announced, legal challenges to it began in the courts of England and Scotland. In Scotland, the case was led by Jolian Maugham QC, and from the Scottish National Party, Joanna Cherry QC, MP, TERF. Meanwhile, in England, Gina Miller applied for a judicial review at the High Court of Justice for England and Wales. The cases made their way to the Supreme Court. On September 24th, the Supreme Court ruled that the prorogation was both justiciable, i.e. they could make a legal decision on it, and that it was unlawful. They ruled that prorogation could not be used to prevent Parliament from carrying out its constitutional functions as a legislature. 
you know, it was quite busy at the time. So in effect, the Supreme Court ruled that Boris Johnson had lied to the Queen. The Brexit deadline was extended, but in December 2019, Boris Johnson got the general election he craved. Despite lying to the Queen, Johnson led the Tories to a parliamentary majority of 80, with his simplistic slogan of Get Brexit Done appealing to the country's lowest common denominators. I know I shouldn't editorialise, but I'd like to paraphrase Crichton from Red Dwarf here. People actually voted for Boris Johnson. Who? Only a yogurt. Anyway, quite a lot of people were surprised to find that the UK had a Supreme Court in the first place. And this is what was so weird about last year. We actually had to look up how our country worked. And usually it just kind of chugged along. So who do we have to thank for the existence of the Supreme Court? Why, none other than noted war criminal and star of the Regina monologues, one Anthony Charles Linton Blair. <laughs> Lord's reform was fairly high up Blair's agenda. And before the Supreme Court opened its doors on October the 1st, 2009, the highest judiciary in the land was the Law Lords. Blair wanted the court to be independent of the House of Lords, and plans for it were discussed as early as 2003. The main argument for it was to properly separate the legislative from the judiciary, something achieved by the Supreme Court being its own thing. So well done, Tony Blair. So that's a very brief rundown of the UK legislature. One thing that's a bit odd about the UK is that our constitution isn't written down in a central document, like the American one is. Instead, our constitution is pieced together mostly from sugar packets, with the first one being Magna Carta, written in 1215. So rather than things being explicitly unconstitutional, i.e. the Constitution says this, you're just trying to do something else, so no chance, the Supreme Court makes decisions on legal precedent, sometimes going back hundreds of years to do so, often to the time of King Charles I. OK, so that's some peculiarities of British Constitution, but, but what about one of the most peculiar roles there is in British politics, the Speaker of the House of Commons? Well, the role of the Speaker is to essentially be the referee. They preside over the House of Commons and call order if things get out of hand. They have the power to eject MPs who break the rules and even adjourn the entire sitting if needs be. When a Speaker retires, a new one must be chosen from the city MPs. The debate is held in Parliament. And as there is no Speaker, the debate is presided over by the Father of the House, the MP with the longest period of unbroken service who is not a minister. Each nominee must be nominated by at least 12 other MPs. Once the debate is concluded and the new Speaker elected, the first custom is supposed to take place. The Speaker is reluctantly dragged to the Speaker's chair by another MP. This custom stems from the Speaker being the one who directly communicated the will of Parliament to the monarch. If the monarch didn't like it, the Speaker would get it in the neck. So traditionally, it's a job you don't want. For example, Henry VIII is supposed to have executed two speakers of the House. So once elected, the Speaker has to declare themselves politically neutral and renounce ties to their former party. One thing I find odd about the role of the Speaker is that they're still a sitting MP, with a constituency to represent in Parliament. However, the tradition is that once a Speaker is elected, they won't be challenged, so they get a free pass to Parliament. The Speaker can't ask political questions, so their constituency doesn't have representation in Parliament while the Speaker is their MP. In the general election of 2010, the Speaker John Perko only won his Buckingham seat because of first-past-the-post, receiving 47.3% of the vote. In second place was John Stevens of the Buckinghamshire Campaign for Democracy, with 21%, you know, who was making those exact points. We don't have an MP, essentially. But he, in turn 
beat the candidate from UKIP, one Nigel Farage, who got 17%. Nigel Farage there, a man with less dignity than the Aral Sea has water. Once elected, the Speaker tends to hang around in the role until they resign. There's an election for the Speaker after every general election, but tradition dictates that the sitting Speaker isn't challenged. The Speaker has three deputies who can step up to the role when the Speaker is unavailable. The first Deputy Speaker has the title Chairman of Ways and Means, which derives from the Ways and Means Committee, a committee for planning government budgets, which was abolished in 1967. For some reason, the title has just hung around. It's it's really weird. Uh, but that committee was chaired by the first Deputy Speaker, hence the title. So onto the subject of the new story, Betty Boothroyd herself. Her election to the role of Speaker was on April 27th, 1992, four days before the Otto Show first aired. So Boothroyd was born in Dewsbury in Yorkshire in 1929, and her parents were textile workers. She had a career as a dancer in her early days, appearing on stage at the London Palladium. However, a foot injury put an end to that, and she entered politics, becoming a secretary to the Labour MPs Barbara Castle and Geoffrey de Freitas. In 1960, she moved to the USA, and worked as a legislative assistant for American Congressman Silvio Conte. In 1962, she moved back to the UK and worked as a secretary once more. She stood for Parliament as a member of the Labour Party several times and eventually won a by-election in 1973. Her constituency? West Bromwich. Ugh. And speaking of poor appointments in the West Bromwich area, no, no, I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> Singing Alla Ralla Ralla Dice. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> so, as an MP, she held various roles, including being a member of the Select Committee on Foreign Affairs and a member of the Labour Party's National Executive Committee. She also had a short stint as a member of the European Parliament. Following the general election of 1987, she became one of the three deputy speakers under Bernard Weverell, who had served in the role since 1983. Weverell retired before the general election of 1992, so one of the first jobs of the new parliament was to elect his replacement. The election was presided over by the father of the House, who just so happened to be former Prime Minister Ted Heath. To start with, the Conservative MPs Michael Newbert and Tom Arnold, not that one, put forward Peter Brook for the role. As was custom, Brook then made a speech explaining why he was best suited for it. After that, the Tory MP John Biffen and Labour MP Gwyneth Dunwoody moved to elect Betty Bufoy to the role. She then gave her speech, which was quite self-deprecating. She joked about not having a full purse and made references to her former career as a dancer. The MPs voted. Bufoy received 372 votes and Peter Brook 238. Biffen and Dunwoody then went to the bench where Bufoy was sitting and they did the reluctantly dragged to the chair thing. Betty Boothroy took her seat as Speaker to rapturous applause and became the first female Speaker of the House of Commons. Her cries of order, order became etched into the memories of people like myself who watched Parliament on TV in the 90s. I think my highlight of hers was when she threw out DUP leader and longest surviving specimen from the Cretaceous period, the Reverend Dr Ian Paisley. Another weird parliamentary tradition is that you can't accuse someone of lying. In December 1993, Ian Paisley did just that. Paisley was unhappy that the Northern Ireland Secretary, Sir Patrick Mayhew, had been meeting with representatives from the IRA. According to Paisley, Mayhew rubbished these suggestions, and he wanted to know how the government could support these falsehoods. Boothroyd advised him to withdraw the term falsehoods. 
Paisley, who kept accidentally on purpose calling her Madam Deputy Speaker, refused and doubled down, clarifying that when he said falsehood, he meant lie. Boothroyd went ahead with the motion to suspend Ian Paisley from Parliament for five days, which passed by 272 votes to 25. She was also famously involved in the vote on the social chapter of the Maastricht Treaty, also in 1993, but I've already talked about that one in episode 50, the Maastricht Treaty alone, so I won't go over it again here. Boothroyd retired in the year 2000, stepping down before the summer recess. Tributes to her came pouring in from all sides of the political spectrum, with Tony Blair calling her something of a national institution. Her replacement was Michael Martin, another former Labour MP who seems to have escaped everyone's attention, despite being the Speaker for nine years. As tradition dictated, Betty Boothroyd became a crossbencher in the House of Lords following her spell as Speaker, where she took the title Baroness Boothroyd. She's been there for nearly 20 years and still sits there at the ripe old age of 91. So, as you know, I I generally challenge myself to find uh, an instance within The Simpsons where uh, uh, Tom's history part really, um, you know, kind of, uh, is part of the show um, and I have a grave if somewhat predictable announcement to make I can find no reference to either Betty Boothroyd herself or speakers of the House of Commons in The Simpsons it may be spied briefly from the outside the building itself in season 15 episode 4 the Regina monologues but that would involve me watching that episode again so I haven't gone back to check and so I am forced to admit defeat it is a dark dark day in the history of the podcast and one from which I, indeed we, may never recover. So it just remains to say, Merry Christmas, everyone, and you all have a stonking new year. Don't forget you can find us at retrospectacles.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher, and you can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospectacles. Email us at podcast at retrospectacles.org and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. Thanks for listening. Bye, everyone, and Merry Christmas. Make the best of it what you can. Yay!